This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Jürgen Meltzer about his book, Wings for the Rising Sun, a transnational history of Japanese aviation, out from Harvard University Asia Center in 2020. Wings for the Rising Sun traces the history of Japanese aviation from its origins with hot air balloons in the 1870s until the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Meltzer's narrative centers around three themes. The first, uh, transnational technology transfer and Japan's accompanying efforts to attain technological independence. Number two, uh, domestic efforts to mobilize public enthusiasm for aviation development. Uh, Meltzer calls this air-mindedness. And finally, the complicated interplay of aviation with military and diplomatic history. The first chapters in part one, take us to the end of World War One, which was a turning point for Japanese aviation. Until that, uh, until that time, Japan had been most interested in French technologies, but the settlement of the Great War at Versailles provided an opportunity to take advantage of German aviation advancements. Parts two and three contrast the development of aviation in the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy, exposing crucial differences not only between the two services, but within each one. Part four begins with the Japanese turn to American civil aviation technologies in the wake of the 1931 Manchurian incident and the subsequent impact of Japanese aggression and U.S. retaliatory sanctions leading up to Pearl Harbor. The final chapter covers the fevered development of rocket and jet-propelled aircraft during the war and therefore in the context of resource shortages and a fast-ticking clock. Meltzer, who is a former Lufthansa pilot, has written a book that will appeal to readers interested in STS military history, international relations, and Western history, in addition to Japanese history aficionados. Okay, so Dr. Meltzer, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, So I'd like to uh, start off by asking you about how you came to this project. And and I understand that your personal history uh, before going into academia has a lot to do with your interest uh, in aviation. So I'd love if you could tell us about that as well. Okay, thank you very much, Nathan. So first of all, of course, I want to thank you for this wonderful opportunity to present my book to the listeners of the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast. So let me shortly introduce myself. I'm Jürgen Meltzer, and I'm a professor at Yamanashi Gakuin University in Japan. As you already might have guessed from my accent, I come from Germany. My research and my new book are somehow closely connected to my biography. So please allow me to talk a little bit about my previous career. 
Since I was a teenager, I loved flying. When I was 16, I joined the local glider flying club where I learned how to fly gliders. At the age of 25, I joined the German airline Lufthansa to become an airline pilot. After several years of flying short-range jets within Europe, I changed to the jumbo jet. And with this aircraft, I was flying to many places all around the world, including Japan. Then in the year 2000, I had a sports accident and I could not fly anymore. I decided to go back to university and began studying Japanese language and Japanese history, first in London and then in the United States at Harvard and Princeton. Well, that's how I became a historian of modern Japan. At Yamanashi Gakuen University, I'm now teaching courses on Japanese history, on the history of technology in Japan, and on the history of Japan's international relations. Now, if you ask me what made me write this book, I would answer that my curiosity about the history of Japanese aviation was quite unexpectedly sparked during a trip to the Lake Constance in the south of Germany. In the Zeppelin Airship Museum, I discovered several photos of the German aircraft maker Dornier and of his airplanes flying over Japan. After some further inquiry, I found out that during the 1920s, nearly all major German aircraft makers were involved in the development of Japan's aviation. I began to ask myself, why could Germany, as a defeated nation, and as Japan's former World War I enemy, wield such an influence. During my further research, I found out how Japan's aviation was successively reshaped under French, British, German, and American influence. I became quite fascinated how Japanese military officials, diplomats, and industrialists skillfully gained access to the latest foreign aviation technology and how Japan could build up an independent domestic industry. During my research, I decided to connect Japan's history of technology with the country's military strategy and its international relations. My aim was to put aviation history into a wider context and to make my book different from the many aviation encyclopedias and illustrated history. The book also should go beyond the narrow scope of memoirs and the idealized biographies of heroic pilots and ingenious designers. Well, what came out of this was Wings for the Rising Sun. Yeah, thank you. That's a fascinating personal biography, and I, I appreciate you sharing it. And it's also a great setup for one of the first questions that I wanted to, to ask you, which sort of fleshes out some of the things that you started to talk about, um, about the, the sort of issues that your book is engaging with. Um, so it, uh, your book, I think, is focusing on three central themes in the history of Japanese aviation uh, up to 1945. Um, and those are uh, technology transfer, and very specifically transnational transfer and national diffusion, as you put it. Uh, then number two is efforts to mobilize public enthusiasm for aviation and aviation development. 
And the third is the military diplomatic nexus, which you've already alluded to um, with aviation and international politics. So can you give us a, a quick overview of each of these broad themes that I think tie your book together? Yes, surely. So technology transfer is indeed one of the central topics of my book. It's important to know that Japan's aeronautical experts were not just passive receivers of foreign technology. I'm emphasizing throughout the book that these engineers took a very active role that soon surpassed the mere improvement of imported designs. I show how their expertise reached a level where they designed a new generation of aircraft that clearly demonstrated their full independence from foreign technology. Popular aviation enthusiasm is another thread that connects the various stages of Japan's aviation history. The book demonstrates how the Japanese military fully included the public in the national aviation project. The army and the navy staged balloon launches, air shows, and patriotic donation campaigns. It turned out that airplanes were very effective vehicles to mobilize national pride and public air-mindedness. A third recurrent theme is the close link between aeronautical advancement, international relations, and military strategy. Let me give you just one example. Immediately after World War I, France and Britain wanted to get rid of their wartime surplus aircraft and began competing for the build-up of Japan's air power. As a result, the Japanese military and industry could take full advantage of this international rivalry to import aeronautical material and know-how. Yeah, thank you. That, uh, that was an, ex an extremely concise summary of some very di uh, difficult and complicated topics that you treat throughout the book. Um, so I want to jump into uh, part one of the book, and the book is divided into four parts, each of which has a number of shorter chapters. Uh, but I think it makes sense for us to think about uh, then the the book in its four parts for the for the purposes of this conversation. So, uh, part one is uh, early Japanese aviation, eighteen seventy seven to nineteen eighteen. Uh, there are two chapters uh, in part one, and they examine the earliest years of aviation in Japan, starting with Japan's first balloon launch in eighteen seventy seven. Um, and already the three themes that we've just talked about stand out here, the role of the military, technological transfer, um, uh, and in particular, Japanese efforts to attain technological independence on the one hand, and the involvement of the media on the other. Um, starting with what you call the balloon fever, which is a, a lovely phrase, in the 1870s, uh, these chapters take us through developments in the Russo-Japanese War, uh, what you call the decisive year of 1909, and through Japan's first motorized flights into the French decade of the 1910s. So um, to, to get us started here, what were some of the early uh, landmark events in Japanese aviation, and how and why does France emerge as the early source and model for Japanese aviation development? Well, apart from the Navy's successful balloon launch in May 1877, Japan's first motorized flight was, of course, a milestone in the history of Japan's early aviation. The event took place in December 1910 at to Tokyo's Yoyogi Parade Ground. 
If you go there, you can still find a commemorative plaque at what is now the Yoyogi Park. As for the French influence, indeed, France had an enormous impact on the early build-up of Japan's air power. Well, the reason is quite simple. Until World War I, France enjoyed worldwide recognition as the leader in aviation. Therefore, the Japanese decided to rely on French airplanes and French instructors for laying the foundation of their air power. This had quite impressive results. In the book, I mention how during World War I, Japanese pilots fought in French aircraft above the German leaseholds of Qingdao in China. Furthermore, Japanese aviation experts who were based in France witnessed the dramatic advances in French aviation during World War I. When they came back to Japan, they propagated a strong Japanese air power, a domestic aircraft industry, and a national aviation ideology. Then, in late 1918, the so-called French aeronautical mission to Japan trained a large number of Japanese pilots and helped to set up the production of French airplanes and French engines. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, great. So that takes us right up through the end of World War One, and that gets us to part two, uh, where Germany emerges. Uh, so we have part two, Germany and Japan's army aviation, 1918 to 1937. Uh, so the two chapters here, chapters three and four, focus on uh, army aviation, of course, and its developments after World War One. In part three, um, you are going to you you then go on to contrast this with the navy. So I just want to sort of give a, a heads up to our, our listeners about that and readers as well. Um, and overall, in these two parts, you're emphasizing not only the uh, interbranch rivalry between the army and navy, which is quite notorious among Japanese historians, um, but also a quite, a, as you put it, a sharp difference between the two branches of Japan's armed forces in their approaches to aviation. So I want to try and keep those things in mind as we move forward. Uh, but first, we have to think about, of, of course, the end of World War One, and this—I guess this was part of the answer to the question that brought you to the book, the book project originally, uh, because the Treaty of Versailles turns out to be a sort of pivotal moment in the history of Japanese aviation. Um, and so, why is that? What changed? Um, how does uh, Japanese military aviation advance in the twenties? And what were some of its challenges? In particular, in Chapter 4, you examine some of the ways that Japan attempts to break free of foreign dependence and develop capacity for independent design. And on a personal note, I found it especially interesting, um, this idea that you put out of doctrinal slumber to explain the stagnation of army air strategy, uh, even after it was successfully deployed in Manchuria starting in the early 1930s. Yes, the 1919 Versailles Treaty is indeed very important because it unintentionally promoted the high standard of German aviation to the Japanese. Let me shortly explain. 
a Berlin-based Allied inspection team had almost unrestricted access to the German aviation industry. The Japanese team members were quite impressed by what they saw in these factories, so they started to send detailed reports back to Japan. And there was one more effect of the Versailles Treaty. As one of the victorious powers, Japan was entitled to receive aircraft and engines from Germany as war reparations. After the Japanese experts had examined these objects, they began to invite German engineers. The Germans, who then came to Japan, introduced their new all-metal technology and taught their Japanese counterparts an entirely new set of design concepts and production methods. Well, this was really important. Through the cooperation with German companies such as Donier, Rohrbach and Junkers, a new generation of Japanese aviation engineers made fast progress toward independence from foreign design. German expertise had also a remarkable impact on the progress of Japanese air power. When the Japanese army went to war against China in 1931, it was able to deploy some of the world's most advanced airplanes. Now, there was a problem. With the rise of the army's imperial wave faction in the early 1930s, this technological advance did not lead to a breakthrough in the army's air strategy. These, well, I will call them radical traditionalists, valued the soldiers' fighting morale over modern technology. They demoted the army's air arm to a subordinate position and limited the field of aerial operations to the close support of ground troops only. With this move, the army completely abandoned the strategic use of its air power and fell into what I call a doctrinal slumber. Yes, and thank you for pointing out that that doctrinal slumber is uh, goes beyond the sort of uh, army versus navy factionalism to the internal factionalism within the army. Um, and I think that's another really interesting thing that comes out of, of that part of the book. Um, and so I, I want to move on to one more uh, sort of set of questions uh, about um, the this contrast between uh, the army and the navy moving into part three. So here, uh, part three is called Britain, Germany, and Japan's Naval Aviation 1912 to 1937. Uh, so unlike the army, the Navy enthusiastically promoted a two-pronged expansion of air power through what you call uh, uh, both internal and external research and development. Um, and at the same time, you write that Japan's emerging naval aviation had a slow start. Ultimately, though, you're arguing, I think, that the Japanese Navy clearly navigated the political, military, and technological disruptions of World War I and effectively seized the opportunities of the immediate post-war era. So why did naval aviation get a slow start? What held it back? And how were these obstacles overcome to uh, achieve that kind of success? Okay, as to your first question, during the early years of Japan's aviation, Senior Navy officials still saw the aircraft as an immature technology with little military value. There was a reason for this way of thinking. 
After the Japanese Navy scored their spectacular successes in the war against China and Russia, the big ship, big gun policy prevailed among Navy officials. In other words, these officers believed that large ships and superior firepower would be decisive for victory at sea. Then things changed in the early 1920s. In 1921, the Navy's air power proponents invited a British aviation mission. The mission members brought with them more than 100 aircraft and trained Japanese Navy pilots in aerial combat, reconnaissance and air attacks. In 1923, a Japanese fighter aircraft that was designed by British engineers landed on Japan's first aircraft carrier that itself was modeled on the British carrier Furious. I'm arguing that this carrier deck landing became the peak of technology transfer from Britain. The new carrier technology also strengthened the Navy's air power advocates and seriously challenged the big ship, big gun policy of the traditionalists. Yes, and of course, we're uh, recording in the immediate aftermath of the Suez Canal uh, debacle. So I guess we're rethinking the big ship policy once again, uh, or at least we should be. Um, anyway, so, so you, you brought us to this, uh, the British uh, uh, aviation mission to Japan. And I think that's uh, the next thing that I wanted to sort of ask about here. Um, in the 20s, the advent of, of aircraft carriers, as you said, transformed naval aviation. Um, and after that, though, the, the Anglo-Japanese relationship is quite complicated after World War I. Nevertheless, Japan is able to draw on the experience of the British to develop and integrate uh, this new technology. And then, but by the 1930s, the Navy is looking beyond Britain um, to, to Germany and also to the United States. Um, and at the same time, are trying, as, as always, to achieve independence from foreign design uh, during that decade. Yes, let me shortly talk about the evolution of Japanese dive bombers to illustrate that case. It's an interesting story that fully shows the strong interaction between military doctrine and technological development. The Japanese Navy learned about the latest advances in dive bombing in 1930 when an engineer of the Navy Technical Research Institute visited several U.S. aircraft manufacturers. Then, with the initial help of the German aircraft maker Heinkel, the Japanese company IG Toke started building dive bombers in 1934. This new dive bomber technology had enormous consequences. It made the Japanese Navy more and more confident to win a war against the large fleet of American warships. And as a result, the character, the character of Japan's air power changed during the 1930s from a largely defensive force to an air fleet with a new and aggressive first strike capability. At the same time, as you rightly mentioned, Japan's naval aviation also achieved independence from foreign design. Let me put it this way. By 1933, the Japanese Navy had some of the world's finest flying boats, 
carrier fighters, and dive bombers. This clearly demonstrated that the Japanese engineers had caught up with the United States and Britain, and in many aspects even surpassed their former mentors. Great, and that takes us up to part four, uh, which treats the end of the 1930s and into the 1940s. So part four is called Toward Pearl Harbor and Beyond, 1937 to 1945. Uh, Chapter seven, which is the first of the chapters in this part, uh, looks at the influence of American aviation technology uh, in the decade between the Manchurian incident, which we've already mentioned in 1931, and the assault on Pearl Harbor uh, in 1941. Um, I personally found this to be the most, I guess, surprising chapter in the book because I hadn't realized the degree to which uh, U.S. and Japanese aviation were intertwined in the 1930s. I I will admit I was less surprised to find that continuing U.S. stereotypes of Japanese backwardness and derivative engineering, as you put it, led U.S. intelligence to undermine the fast progress of Japanese aviation. Um, But my question to you is, uh, why did Japan suddenly develop an interest in American planes? And then later in the decade, what was the effect of the kind of time bomb scenario uh, that was created by American sanctions? And what should the U.S. have been, have done to, or how how should the U.S. have been warier of advances in Japanese aviation uh, in this decade? Well, I argue that during the five years before the Pearl Harbor attack, the United States played a key role in the rapid development of Japan's military aviation. It's interesting to see how the Japanese resourcefully profited from advances in U.S. civil aviation. Around that time, U.S. engineers came up with a new generation of passenger aircraft. These airplanes had much less air resistance, which allowed for a major speed increase, and efficient engines and propellers combined high power with low fuel consumption. All these design features were of great interest to the Japanese aircraft makers. The chapter also shows how the large-scale import of US material and above all of machine tools promoted technological advance in the design and once more, even more important, in the mass production of Japanese aircraft. Now, there was a a fundamental dilemma. The further growth of Japan's air power increasingly depended on the country's access to U.S. production technology. At the same time, Japan's aggressive use of air power over China led to escalating U.S. sanctions that threatened to stop this vital supply. Japan depended so heavily on U.S. production machinery that America's impending machine tool embargo created this, I call it, the running clock scenario. During the short period between 1937 and 1941, Japan went on a massive shopping spree for aeronautical material and production technology and engaged in widespread industrial espionage and intelligence gathering. These efforts, quite astonishingly, met with little resistance and came to an end only with the effective U.S. embargo in summer 1941. 
As for your question, why should the US have been wearier of advances in Japanese aviation? Until the Pearl Harbor attack, there was little awareness in the US that the Japanese already mass-produced aircraft that combined outstanding performance with an enormous flight range. Only one year after the Pearl Harbor attack, the US intelligence service finally warned US pilots that the Japanese Zero Fighters had, quote, superior maneuverability to all our present service type aircraft, unquote. And the service issued a warning, never attempt to dogfight the Zero. Yes, I remember that as one of the most striking passages in, in the book. Um, so thank you for thank you for bringing it up here. Um, I, I did want to just just sort of to be to be fair, uh, the intelligence failures were not entirely one sided. Um, and though I know it's not you know central to the book, I was really struck by uh, this quote that you have, uh, and I just want to read it out here. Um, Japanese intelligence reports had little influence on the military's long-term strategic planning. And at some level, I guess I always knew this, and I've even argued something similar in some of my own research, but I still found myself just sort of agog when I, when I read this. Yes, this is indeed a very curious story. The Japanese scholar Ken Kotani has argued that the Japanese military made good use of intelligence for tactical operations, like Pearl Harbor or the Malaya campaign. But Japanese intelligence reports had very little impact on the general staff's long-term strategic planning. To give you an example, these officers just ignored warnings about the effects of an impending embargo and paid no attention to an August 1941 report about U.S. strategic material that would outnumber Japan tenfold. Once the war began, Japanese strategists also vastly overestimated Japanese fighting capability, which made them confident to achieve air supremacy even at an overwhelming ratio of 1 to 10 to U.S. air power. Yeah, that's very interesting. And the, the difference between strategic and tactical thinking, I think, was the, the, the part of that uh, puzzle that I didn't have. And that's, uh, that was very helpful. Thank you. So the final chapter uh, of part four uh, and of the book uh, is about the desperate developments in Japanese military aviation uh, after Pearl Harbor during the Pacific War. Uh, so, of course, we're dealing with uh, resource and time pressures, which are shaping the course of research uh, and development during these years. And as you put it, uh, this chapter once more challenges the view of Japanese engineers as unimaginative imitators. Um, and you tell, uh, you sort of tell that story through the stories of uh, the Shusui, Kika, and Oka, these uh, three different uh, Japanese planes that, there, that were developed. And you conclude, uh, and I want to quote you again here, that Japan's ambitious jet and rocket projects led to remarkable technological advances. At the same time, they exposed with striking clarity all the fundamental shortcomings of the country's wartime aviation. So what do you mean by that? Unpack that for us. Well, from an engineering point of view, the development of Japan's first rocket and jet aircraft, called Shusui and Kika, was a remarkable achievement. 
Within less than a year, the Japanese specialist had designed and built exotic airframes and mastered two revolutionary new propulsion technologies. The chapter lays out how the Japanese engineers overcame countless technological challenges for which the very limited German material simply provided no answers. Yet these advanced projects also manifest the problems that ultimately led to the collapse of Japan's aviation. There were, for instance, the production managers who had to comply with absurd production plans while they were coping with material shortages, bombing damage and plant dispersals. The military leaders, for their part, ignored the country's crumbling industrial base and put their faith in the latest technology, which made them believe they still could fin win a final decisive battle. Last not least, Japan's engineers dutifully put their skills to work. At the same time, as in the case of the rocket-driven suicide bomber Oka, they did not object to the operationally flawed concepts and unreasonable demands of their military clients. Thank you. Yeah. So um, we didn't, uh, unfortunately, and this is entirely uh, uh, my fault, but we didn't really talk quite as much uh, about the media and pu public support side. Um, that's a big, a big part of the project that you're doing here. Uh, but it's really, it really sort of flows as a, a current throughout. Um, if you'd like to uh, say a word or two about that here at the end, that would be great too. But I also want to ask you what it is that you're uh, working on now, now that you're done with this book project. Okay. Thank you for your question. Let me put this two uh, questions into a single answer because somehow they are connected. So uh, <clears throat> the working title of my new book is Pilots for the Rising Sun. So I want to take a look at the history of pilot training in Japan. And by doing so, I want to explore Japan's youth aviation education by looking into how the government and military instilled air-mindedness into the young Japanese. And this, coming back to the first part of the question, is a major aspect of fostering air-mindedness among Japanese people. Get the youth enthusiastic for joining and participating in the aviation project. Now, in the new book project, I also want to cover the development of military and civil flight training. And finally, in one aspect, I want to devote special attention to the training of young kamikaze pilots, a topic that again is connected with uh, fostering well, air-mindedness. But it's also a topic that, in my view, has received a rather biased treatment so far. So, in my view, there are still a lot to do and it will be a fruitful topic for further research. Well, great. That sounds fascinating. And I hope that uh, when your book comes out, you'll consider coming back on the on the podcast. I, I also want to uh, make sure to thank you for being in the same time zone as me. That makes my life so much easier. Uh, so you're welcome anytime. Um, but yes, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us to talk about your book. And I hope you will consider coming back uh, when your new book is out. So thank you once more for letting me participate in your fascinating project. And sure, I'm looking forward very much to appear 
pretty soon on your project again. Okay, thank you.